I did wear my favorite shirt tonight. Just I do have an excuse. I was left unsupervised. <laughs> but I want to talk uh, to you tonight, kind of like I, I do every time I come up here, and give you uh, an idea of the experience that I had with uh, alcohol and drug addiction over my life, and then talk about the... Um, the strength that I had to muster in order to get through to the other side of that. And finally, uh, the last part of that, the hope that uh, I have not only for myself, but for, for everybody in recovery and even those who are still out on the streets using. And when I, when I talk about my experience, um, I'm going to uh, go through a very long list of the things that I did to get me where I was. And I want you to know that I'm not boasting or bragging about, um, about the amount that I drank or the drugs that I took or uh, just basically the stupidity that I participated in in my life. So I'm not boasting, but I, every day I wake up and I said, were you really that guy? Because every morning I wake up, I have to declare myself an alcoholic. I still do that after 15 years. And if I don't talk to Melissa about it, I talk to God about it. And it's a daily ritual. It's uh, something that I have got to continue to admit to myself that I am an alcoholic. And it doesn't take much to fall off that wagon. And I've had lots of my friends over the years die from from relapse, and it's not pretty. And um, and I miss all those guys because they helped me become sober. But let me uh, just uh, start out. Uh, uh, Pastor Rhonda said that I was uh, Dan Quayle's brother. I am. So I came from a pretty normal uh, Midwest family. I was. Uh, I have a twin sister, and we were the youngest out of four children. And I, you know, of course, Dan and I've got another brother. So we, I grew up in the 60s, and very normal, uh, very normal. And, uh, but I had a problem. Uh, I, I'll go back to when I was very young. I, my sister and I were adopted. And uh, at nine months old, nothing that I remembered. So my mom and dad and my, my brothers were always my family. But older brothers being who they are, and I had a father who, who had an odd sense of humor, uh, they were always telling me that I was uh, being a twin. They, they wanted my sister, but they didn't want you, and you just had to come along in the deal. Well, And that started about three years old. Three to four years old, I was told I wasn't wanted. And I don't know if anybody here has ever been told as a child that you're not wanted, even as a joke. But I was always told that I was not wanted. And so I kind of grew up with that in the back of my mind. And right, for, right from that moment that I realized that, I thought, okay, um, I need to do something that makes me stand out to make me be wanted. So I was just awesome around the house. I always helped my mother. I always uh, helped my father. I loved my father dearly. And by the time I got old enough, the older brothers were off and off to college. Um, uh, but then I started into public schools, and 
I was the proverbial nerd, uh, the little tiny guy in every classroom situation. I was not very bright. I was not very athletic. I was, I really was was not even really noticeable. My sister, on the other hand, was pretty. She was blonde. She was bigger than I was. She was smart. She was athletic and very, very popular all through junior or all through uh, elementary school, junior high school, and high school. I did not excel at anything. What I did excel at was I always wanted to be somebody else. I always wanted to be one of the cool kids. And that should, I, I should have had them play that, that song, Cool Kids, uh, because that, that, that's my theme song throughout my whole life. But, uh, you know, I even had teachers um, uh, shame me, shame me terribly. In third grade, um, my friends told on me, uh, we, all the little boys went, ran down to the restroom and everyone was tinkling all over the walls and everything. Well, they told on me. And in third grade, I had my pants pulled down in front of the class and spanked for doing that. Now, now the other kids did. So now all of a sudden, all this shame is now starting to pile in on me. And it made me want to become somebody else so much more. And so um, my, my mom and dad drank socially. And my dad was a newspaper publisher in the small town that we were at. And so they would have dinner parties out at the house, typically potlucks and things like that. There was always alcohol served. And I always watched these adults, you know, from the shadows, you know, having fun and, you know, telling jokes and, and just really enjoying themselves. And I always thought, oh, it's in those glasses is making them do that. And so when dinner time came... All those cocktail glasses were left on the coffee tables and other tables. I decided I wanted to be that fun. So really, from a very young age, of maybe six or seven, I started drinking what was left in those glasses. It wasn't very good, uh, but, you know, I'd drink them all up and go somewhere and throw it all back up. But I was having fun. And so this, this was kind of a routine I got into, and my parents never even paid any attention, uh, any attention to that. Um, but my time in school kept going along, and never, I was never very popular, and I always uh, tried to be popular, but I was uh, shunned by many of, of my classmates. But I was, I was a happy little boy. I just kind of went through life always wishing that I was somebody else. I wanted to be that kid Mike who could, or Bill, who could play kickball better and play basketball. And, and so I always tried. And I was always getting humiliated um, because I didn't bring home the best grades. And I think that I was so stuck on trying to become somebody else that my schoolwork was not, not very important to me. So as, uh, as time went on, um, I stayed around uh, Huntington, Indiana uh, until it was time for me to go off to high school. And my grades in junior high school were horrible. And I had spent summers with my grandmother and there were another couple kids there. We used to get into their, in their father's liquor cabinets. And so by 11 or 12, uh, I was drinking very regularly. And 
you know, we thought it was kind of funny to stagger down the sidewalk. I'd stink, uh, sneak in my grandmother's back door and go on up to bed. She never paid much of attention to it at all. Uh, and I would get sick, and but that was just kind of my life. And so my, my grades in junior high school uh, were horrible, and I thought, okay, if I'm going to go to college like my parents want, I need to uh, go to a school where I can really concentrate, and it's a good chance to get away from here and nobody knows me. So I went away to a military school in northern Indiana that uh, it was, it's really a great school. But the only problem with, with that is I followed myself there. And I was the same person there that I was at home. I was overlooked by uh, many of the guys in my company and uh, being a hard school, my grades were horrible. The only thing that I could participate in there was uh, in backstage theater stuff, which I love, the lighting and the sound and set design, set uh, building, and, and, but that labeled me as, as, as a dork in military school. Um, it was there that in my sophomore year that I met my roommate from Venezuela who uh, showed something new to me called marijuana. We couldn't really drink in military school because of the smell. But we could go out in the woods and smoke dope and have a good time, and nobody really even knew it. That led to something else, um, which was uh, drugs and other forms, pills uh, mostly, um, or powder or whatever else we could put into our bodies. and. The only thing that I was doing, I was not becoming any more popular. I was not becoming smarter. I was not becoming anything other than a drug addict. And I can remember a guy from the Middle East brought um, Speed. Speed became my, my new best friend. Uh, I could stay up all night studying and stay up the next day. And I, once, once or twice a week, I could uh, get some sleep and everything was great. And so this went on through all of, our, all of high school. In the summer times, I'd return home, get a job, and get into my dad's liquor cabinet. And so this was just a nonstop thing. And I didn't even really think too much about it as I was, as I was growing up. And, um, but my grades were not, not very good. <laughs> and, uh, but... I was, I was liked by a certain segment of the school and just kind of looked over by another segment of the school. I looked so forward to graduation day because I needed to get out of there. I mean, I'd gone about as far as I could. So it was time to go to college. I lived in northern Indiana. And uh, Michigan in 1974 had an 18-year-old drinking age. Eureka. That was, that was where I wanted to go to school. I was 17 when I drove onto the campus, but by 17, I was already an alcoholic, drinking every day, um, lost in, in myself, lost in the world. Um, but when I went to college, I followed myself to college. It's funny how that works. It's funny how that works. But I found a whole new bunch of people. These guys liked me. This, this fraternity, everybody in this house liked me. You want to know why? Because I had some great pot with me, and I could chug a beer faster than anybody in that fraternity house. 
So, and I just talked to one of those guys. I've not talked to anybody in that fraternity uh, since I left there. And I just was chatting with, uh, with one online and he remembered my drinking. That's what he remembered about me. So I found a whole new bunch of guys in a great fraternity house that accepted me. I was the big man in the fraternity house, went on to be its president. Now, did, has anybody in this room seen the movie Animal House? All right, that was my fraternity. <laughs> right down to throwing kegs of beer through the windows and uh, driving motorcycles into the house. We had a feud going on with the ATOs next door. We had, we had feuds with chainsaws, and we'd cut each other's houses up. I was the president of that mess. And uh, so I was in the dean's office, if not daily, every other day, uh, talking about what we had done. The president of the college lived right across the street from us, who just happened to be really close friends of my parents. Um, I can't tell you the things that I did to his house. Um, uh, but college, to me, it was all about drinking and experimenting with drugs. And talk about bad grades in high school. I didn't even not, did not even have grades in college. I never went to class. Uh, I, I would uh, blow off classes every day. And by the time I was a senior, uh, my drinking literally was out of control. I, I never went home on vacations because I needed to drink so much and I could not be around my parents. You know, I would have to go home for Christmas and I would have to not drink for a few days, but that was painful for me. It, I mean, it, it wasn't my life. And by, uh, after the first semester of my senior year, I had 16 credit hours to complete, which is nothing. It's a semester. I quit college. I needed to get out of there because I had made such a mess of my life at college. And my health was horrible, and I just, I had to move on. So I just told my, my mom and dad I was, I was quitting college, and I was uh, ready to go to work. I needed to go to work, and I moved to Arizona. My dad owned a small little newspaper, started working there. I actually stopped drinking for a while. You know, I would drink socially, a uh, glass of wine with some friends down at the tavern or whatever, but I, I, I wasn't getting loaded all the time, and I wasn't doing any drugs, and, and I told myself that drugs needed to be behind me. And, um, but, uh, so I, I started working there and I took a, an interest in, um, I wanted to be a firefighter and a paramedic. I was, that was back in the days of the show called Emergency. I wanted to be a paramedic like Johnny Gage. And, uh, so I set my sights on doing that and I became a, uh, an Arizona firefighter for the city of Glendale and a paramedic. And uh, I was living a great life, 24 hours on, 48 hours off, uh, made lots of money, would go out to the lake with friends, and I'd drink a little bit. And so I thought, okay, I've got another bunch of guys that like me, and this is great. This is awesome. Then I met uh, my first, uh, first wife, Cindy, and... Um, with, uh, and she had two boys, and so I adopted those children. Her husband had abandoned her years before. And between becoming a newlywed and the pressures of the job and everything else, I started drinking again pretty heavily. 
And it didn't take long for uh, that to man manifest itself into me missing work. And unfortunately, my brother-in-law then, Cindy's sister's husband, was my, my captain on my fire engine, uh, who was noticing that I was missing lots of days. And uh, it was pretty well known that I was drinking a lot, and I had had some situations at work. Uh, most notably was, a, was an accident that we went on, a very bad car pedestrian accident, and um, I was just covered with this patient's blood and came to find out the next day that uh, he had this strange new virus called HIV, AIDS. And we didn't even know what it was then. It was brand new, and, and we didn't even wear gloves when we were out on the scene of anything. And uh, so I decided it was time to quit the fire department. I was not going to be taken out. If I was killed in a fire, great. But I was not going to let a virus take me out. So I decided to quit, and I went back into the profession that I had studied for, which is a profession of my family, and that was journalism. And I moved back to Wickenburg, the little town outside of Phoenix where I started at, and uh, started working at that newspaper. I ended up buying it and uh, from my father. And my wife and I published that newspaper for a couple years. Every week, though, a friend of mine and I had to go to Phoenix. Uh, he had to pick up supplies for his restaurant, and we ended up in bars. And by the grace of God, we got home because we were both smashed trying to get 60 miles home through the desert. And a uh, couple years of this, my wife was tired of it. And I ended up passing out behind the wheel on, on a trip that I made by myself and didn't go home that night. She was worried sick and... Anyway, I got home the next morning, and she came to me, and she says, uh, we're, we're done. I'm not, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. So you either get help, or I'm taking the children, and I'm leaving you. That was the first time anybody had ever stood up to me, and I was crushed. I, you know, I wasn't a mean drunk, never raised a hand to her, but she was tired, and so she says, I've got a call in to St. Luke's Medical Center in Phoenix, and they're, they're waiting for you. You have to check yourself in. So I did not want to lose my wife and children, so I dutifully went down there, checked myself in for 30 days. I was the model recovery patient. I did everything that they told me to do. I was, oh, I was awesome. And uh, 30 days later, they, they uh, released me, and I was a whole new man. I had, had, hadn't had anything to drink for 30 days. I was sober. The rest of my life was going to be great. And um, so I went home, and we, I had uh, gotten a job uh, back in Indiana, and we moved to Indiana. And it was a much, much larger newspaper. And... Um, once again, I, um, I moved and all of me moved. And, but I stayed, I'm not going to say sober. I did not drink for seven years. And I was not in a program. I was not at AA. I was not at Celebrate Recovery. I was my own master. God was not really a part of my life at that point other than I went to church each Sunday with my, 
wife and kids. Um, so we were happy living in southern Indiana. I wasn't drinking. And um, four years later, uh, my wife was diagnosed with leukemia. And I thought, oh, this is not good. And being a paramedic and in medicine, the type of leukemia that she had, um, it was a chronic leukemia. I knew that she was not going to survive it. Uh, I prepared, I thought, myself for that. And uh, so another three years went by, and I had taken her for treatment literally all over the country. I was going to try to find a cure for her. Um, but about three and a half years later, in July, she passed away in my arms. I had to, uh, to disconnect the uh, uh, ventilator that she was on, and she passed away within minutes. Uh, I might have been able to handle that had I been in Celebrate Recovery or in Alcoholics Anonymous or had some sort of a team behind me. And the only thing that I knew is God took my wife away from me. I was very, very angry at God. And um, my, both of my boys had started down paths of doing drugs and alcohol. And they were at college. So the only, the only people at home were my wife and my little girl. She was 15 at the time and my best friend. And um, during the funeral, I would go back to my room. I'd hidden alcohol back in my room because I wanted to make sure everyone thought that I was still this great guy who was under control and grieving okay. And I was drinking back in my room. And the first night home, the night before the funeral, I drank a half a gallon of vodka and passed out on my bathroom floor and um, only to have my daughter find me and... Um, so that, that was not a very good situation. I promised her I wouldn't do that again. But that started me down on the relapse of, of a lifetime. And uh, I have to give glory to God and his grace because what he did for me uh, over the next um, seven years, uh, I had relapsed into the depths of, of alcoholism and my wife said, you had so many angels around you protecting you um, between driving while intoxicated, going out and literally uh, drinking uh, just so much alcohol that it would probably kill a normal person. But I was out playing golf every day. I was neglecting my duties at the home. My daughter was always over at a friend's house. My newspapers... Uh, were suffering horribly, um, and I was just spending lots of money. And what was I spending money on? I was not spending money on me. I was spending on money on other people so they would like me. I would go into a restaurant, and we were just up in Indiana last week. It was the first time I'd been there uh, since this one night. I walked in there after a golf game and bought everybody in the restaurant a cocktail. Pretty big restaurant, too, don't you think? Uh, and then I thought, everybody needs a bottle of wine or two. I walked out of there that night with an $11,000 bill. And I don't think anybody liked me anymore for what I had done, but 
Um, it was, but that, that is what I did. I tried to buy the, the affection of others. And it was just not there. I mean, I did this all of the time. And, and all of my friends in the little town that we were living in, uh, if they wanted a free dinner, they'd invite me out to dinner. And we would go out to dinner. Anyway, I got married uh, and uh, to uh, a woman 10 years younger than me, and we both liked to party. Uh, that didn't last very long. Um, but by the end of that, um, in 2004, I was drinking up to a gallon of vodka a day. Uh, if not vodka, I, I considered myself a real wine connoisseur, and I was drinking yellowtail wine. If anybody knows, it's not a great wine. But I was drinking six to eight of the really big bottles of that a day. And it was... Uh, I was now be becoming a, a blackout alcoholic. Um, my health was really going down quickly. I'd always had high blood pressure, and my, uh, um, but I would go see a doctor, and he would keep me on this medication, and he uh, he wrote on my discharge from in my my bill or whatever. It, uh, the diagnosis, DX, was a, uh, acute alcohol abuse. How dare he? <laughs> he palpated my liver. It was hard as a rock. So he knew what I was doing, even though I, oh, I only have a beer or two a day. Um, I was so enraged by that betrayal that I went back into his office, which was in a large medical center, charged my way back into the exam areas and looked for him, yelling his name out, opening patients' doors, I mean, acting like a total madman. And I hadn't even been drinking yet that day, but he had the audacity to say that I was abusing alcohol. How did he know? <laughs> that was a secret. Only I knew that. Anyway, I... Uh, before they called the police, I got out of there. I went home. Uh, my wife at the time had found that piece of paper, and, and she called my daughter, and she said, your dad's really sick. We need, he needs to get some help. And unbeknownst to me, they're both working behind me, getting a hold of the rest of the family, saying, you know, and Jamie was saying, Daddy needs help. And um, I just was cruising right along. Every day I'd make my plan on where I was going to go buy liquor. Anybody else in here an alcoholic and have to make plans because you didn't want somebody to know that you were coming in there every day? I did that every day. That took up a lot of my morning because I didn't live in a very big town. And I always paid cash, didn't want to use a credit card or a check for anything. So I was, oh, I was cool. I was just covering all my tracks. And... Uh, so my family meets once a year, and this, uh, in 2004, that fall, uh, my wife and I were barely even speaking to one another, and, but I had gone out to a family meeting in California up in Santa Barbara. I did not invite her. I left her at home, didn't want to be around her. And uh, so we were really, uh, our home was really being devastated by alcohol. And, uh, and she was, she had some problems of her own with alcohol and drugs, but 
I uh, decided that uh, I'd go out and spend a couple days with my family. And so we had dinner the night before our family meeting, and I had a glass of wine. And my mother looks at me and says, what are you doing? You don't drink anymore. And I said, oh, it's just a glass of wine. Don't worry about it. I went after dinner, I went back to my room and got uh, really hammered on wine. I would taken two or three bottles with me in my suitcase. And um, the next morning, we had our meeting, then lunch, and I said, I'm going to go back to my room. I had two bottles left. And my mom calls my room and says, uh, I need to talk to you. Can you come down? And I thought, I'm going to take a nap first. She says, no, I need, I need to talk to you right now. So I went down there and saw her pacing outside of her hotel room, walked in, and there's my siblings. I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> this is not going to be pretty. So uh, just like uh, Betty Ford, my family conducted an intervention on me, and I knew I had a, had a problem. I would look in the mirror uh, at nights and say to myself, talk to the guy in the mirror, why can't you stop? I never went to bed without finishing all of the liquor in the house. I would have hiding, hiding spots for it. And it was such a uh, sickness trying to, trying to cover all of that. And fortunately, I was not doing drugs. Uh, I hadn't done drugs in years. Um, but anyway, the family uh, said, we know that you've got a problem. We would like for you to go get help. And I, I knew I couldn't get out of it. So I said, okay, I'll go back and pack my bag, take me wherever you're going to take me. I was very angry because my siblings I considered were, uh, a couple of them were just as much of an alcoholic as I was. But I, I went, and they had chartered a plane to get me down to Betty Ford from, uh, Betty Ford Center from Northern California. But before I left, I called the sweetest little girl in the whole world, my daughter, and cussed her up one side and down the other and blamed her for everything. And almost destroyed a lifelong uh, best friendship there. And, but she, uh, she, she took it so well. And uh, I got into the center and uh, went to bed that night. I had had a drink all day, starting to shake a little bit. And it put me on Valium. I thought, this is good. And, but I woke up the next day, and I had to go to an AA meeting in the center. And I, the introductions came around to me. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to tell everybody now I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I did not want to do that. I was, I was ashamed. But I did. I stood up. My name's Mike. I'm an alcoholic. And... Right then and there, uh, my life was starting to change. Because even though I had followed myself to the Betty Ford Center to get help, I was being accepted and liked by a whole different group of people now. And I met uh, uh, people from literally all over the world, all walks of life. Uh, and... Um, I'd really kind of started to open myself up at that point, 
and becoming vulnerable to criticism or anything else that that was going to happen. And I was made it through. I admitted that I had had a problem, so I made it through step one, made it through step two. But then step number three came around. I'd been there for almost a month, and step three at, at AA is you turn your uh, your life and, and your will over to the care of God. No, I'm not going to do that. God killed my wife. He took his he took my wife away from me. And I was a believer. I mean, I, I had been in church my whole life. I was not an atheist or even an agnostic, but I was very, very angry. And I did not want to turn anything over to a God that would take my wife away from me. My wife was really, my, at that time, my whole life. So I kept pushing back on this, and I finally went to a spiritual counselor um, that had been assigned to me, Father Patrick. He was a Benedictine monk with one leg because he, he passed out on a set of railroad tracks and lost a leg. But he was now working in the spiritual uh, realm at, uh, at Betty Ford. And I told him, he, he started asking me what, what my problem was with turning my life over to the care of God. And I said... You know, I, I know he exists, but if he's willing to take my wife from me, he's not a very good God. And we went through this dialogue. I mean, I would stay up all night talking to Patrick. And it finally came down to uh, to an, a, a morning. I woke up, still sitting in the room. Um, uh, <laughs> so much had happened. Uh, in that one room, I had been uh, hypnotized three times in the first month at Betty Ford because I w- was unable to get all of this trauma out of my life without hypnosis. And I could sit here and cry right now over over what I used to see on videotape. They would videotape those sessions and wake me up, and I would fall out of my chair, almost catatonic, just crying for hours because there was so much hurt that caused my disease to flourish, uh, and I did not want to remember or think about it. And uh, But anyway, I woke up in this room, and Patrick came by that morning, and he said, uh, he said, are you ready? And I said, am I ready for what? He says, are you ready to accept the third step? And I said, no. He said, I'm going to tell you what to do. He said, you need to fall on your knees and you need to ask God to intervene in your life and you need to ask him. He's already forgiven you. He has already forgiven you for everything bad that you've thought about him. He's already forgiven you and he need, and you need him and he needs you. Yeah, I said, yeah, yada, yada, yada. So that afternoon, it was uh, Palm Springs, California, in the middle of the afternoon in August. It was 118 degrees outside, not a lick of wind, and I felt it was now or never uh, that I was going to have to accept this step if I was going to move on. So I went outside of my, my dorm and walked out to a little uh, pond. It's called uh, Hope Lake on the campus of the Betty Ford Center. 
And I stood there for a minute, and I turned very angry. And I looked up at the sky, and I said, God, I need your help. Where are you? And I fell to my knees crying, and just then uh, there had to be a 50-degree wind, a little breeze that blew across that little pond in the middle of the desert on that afternoon. God showed up. And this is my Christian testimony at the same time. And he spoke into me and said, everything's going to be okay. Hold on to me. You're never going to have to worry. And that 50-degree breeze stayed there with me for a few minutes. And I was a wreck. I was, I was crying hysterically because what had just happened to me? You know, what had just, I just had an encounter with my Creator. And this started to build in me. And I ran back into the dorm. I ran into my counselor's office, who was not uh, taking appointments that afternoon. And I said, I'm ready for step three. I was there another three months and walked out of there sober. And all of the friends that I thought that I had uh, were no longer my friends because they just wanted me for one reason. And my daughter had forgiven me. She had spent a week there during family week, and we were able to put all of that behind us. And I started at that point when I got home, I moved out of my home. Uh, uh, there was a party going on in my house when I got home that night from back in Indiana, and I thought, this is not good, so I, I basically had moved out. But um, that was the start of a sober life. A lot of hurdles. I had very long nights ahead of me. And if ever, if anybody's been at their first uh, Celebrate Recovery meetings or their first AA meetings or even in, in rehab, you know those, those first nights when after you kind of get it, you're so afraid of relapsing that you're afraid to go to sleep. You're afraid to do anything. What did I do? I turned to my daughter and I said, Jamie, you need to help me learn how to cook. I literally, I... I got it in my mind. I had to make the world's best stuffed pork chop. <laughs> Every afternoon, I'd go to the store. I'd buy four really thick uh, pork chops, and I would find different recipes and make the stuff. I, actually, I was literally up all night long, and I lived on top of my newspaper. What do you do with four pork chops at 6 o'clock in the morning? Uh, so uh, the newsroom would get... Uh, some free food for breakfast. I did this night after night after night. I don't know how many pork chops I made. Things were getting a little bit easier than I got into cookies. I can make some mean cookies, folks. <laughs> it was that distraction that was very critical uh, to my sobriety. But there was something that had happened to me, and... Um, I needed, I needed to explore, and that was this encounter with God. Uh, I didn't know anything about the Bible, other than I really didn't understand it. 
Um, but I visited my mom in Arizona. She was elderly, and she uh, I would go out there every couple of weeks and stay with her, and she watched a, a minister on DVDs uh, that kind of preached to her. So I started watching those with her, and uh, I became a real fan of Esther. <laughs> that was the first entire series that I had watched, and... I thought, wow, this gal's got it, got it going on. If, if, if she can be that brave, so can I. And um, so as time went on, I started uh, delving into Scripture and um, uh, I, I, I told myself if I could stay sober for one year, I would get my pilot's license back, which was just a, a great passion of mine. I would buy an airplane. So I had been sober for a year, and I bought an airplane. I was single, and I was flying everywhere. And I bought a great biplane, um, flew it to California with an instructor that I'd found in Ohio. And I had never seen this before, but this man had a key ring, a big key ring, full of his hundred favorite scriptures. And I thought, this guy is ex-Air Force. He's a retired pilot for all these different airlines. This guy's reading the Bible. That is awesome. So he was sharing some of the scripture with me. And when, we, when uh, after we had let, he flew out to California with me and we came back and... Uh, then I found out the real reason God had put him in my path. There was uh, his daughter was looking for uh, to set set her up, set me up with a young lady down in Atlanta. And I'm not going to do any more setups. I've been on the world's most horrible dates in the last few years. This isn't going to happen. Uh, well, it did. And But I was very intimidated by this woman by the name of Melissa, who is an ordained minister who uh, speaks to churches of all sizes. And I'm going, oh, Lord, I don't know if I can, <laughs> I don't, don't even know if I can uh, deal with that. But, uh, and, but the rest, uh, rest of that is, uh, is history. And um, Melissa has seen a man who has vowed to stay uh, sober. She's seen a man that is, uh, has vowed to help as many others in recovery as he can. Uh, she met a man who thirsted terribly for the Lord, trying to understand what God means to all of us and what God means to me. And uh, so if you struggle with thinking that God doesn't play a very big part in your life. He is your life. And I have, uh, uh, I worked through the pain of losing a wife years ago, 23 years, 22 years ago now. Met a woman who lost her husband. The Lord has not allowed us to, uh, 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 he allows us to use our pain to help others, and, which is what we do now. And every night I go to bed praying for people in recovery. I go to bed praying for people who 
are still out there. I have a stepson who we started sending to rehabs uh, when he was 13 years old. That was, I don't know how many years ago. He's finally clean and sober after about nine months. And I told him I would never give up on him. And, um, uh, but one of the things that I, as I told you, I do every, every day, I have to look back and remind myself how much I drank. And I have to remind myself how many drugs I took. I mean, the stupid quantities that I took. Because I can't go back there. I just, I can't go back there. And I remind myself every day, Mike, you're an alcoholic. But you're a child of God, and you're a child of a God who has got so much mercy. And you're, you're going to be okay. But there are others out there that don't have that. So along with trying to share my, my story of, uh, of sobriety, I always try to remind people they need to be uh, first in line to step up to the Lord. And it's very simple just to say, I need help. But I say all that, and I got a 15-year coin here. And I am sober and never been happier in my life. And I, I will never regret my life. I'll never regret the times that I spent face down in a pool of vomit. Those are the times that made me who I am today. And it's not very pretty. And I can't say that I'm proud, but I'll never be ashamed of who I am and what I had to go through to get back. So I thank you once again for inviting me here. I'm more than happy to answer any questions. And thank you for your love and, and invitation.